This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wend. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? So much of our conversations about the Bible today revolve around revelations that came about through the scholarship of the Enlightenment period. This scholarship was centered around science and historiography, and leading thinkers developed entire social narratives to fit their passions, using their logic as a means to combat the Bible, forcing it into a mold for the lesser people to digest and stay out of the way of the elite. We have to remember that if we submit to the Bible through its language and what we know about the cultures it came out of, it will control our understanding. No man can mold the Bible. The Bible is constructed in such a way as to prevent this very thing from happening. We can say whatever we want about the Bible, but when we hear what it is saying, we discover that the message is true and unmovable, beyond any framework of human morality, ethics, or philosophy. We are sick, we need help, and God is willing to save us. But we have to share that and take care of those around us. The ins and the outs of it all, it doesn't matter. Today we will unpack the story of Noah and the ark he builds in preparation for the flood God is bringing upon the earth. This is one of the most famous stories from the Bible, so naturally, everyone has their own ideas about it, and as I said earlier, many of these ideas come not from scripture itself, but are the product of the schools of modernism and postmodernism, historiography, and scientific reason, which are not bad in and of themselves, I'm not saying that they are. The world we live in is interwoven with these schools of thought and social movements, so they are inescapable. They constitute the entire way that we think about reality, and by extension, the way we think about the Bible. So that's fine. It's what we're born into. We can't do much about it. Uh, But it's the classic, it's not our fault, but it's our problem situation. Thankfully, the Bible knows how people are and how they will be. So it is written to address our shortcomings. We can't get rid of the presuppositions that make us but we can allow the Bible to shape them. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We begin with the Toledot of Noah, which is composed of his three sons. Each of them will categorize every biblical character going forward. To begin with, I think we should pay attention to the fact that this is a naked Toledot. And what I mean by that is that there is no mention of the Sefer, 
the book yet. Remember that the previous occurrence of the Toledot was that of the Sefer Toledot of Adam, which is the book of the generations, or in Greek, the Vivlos Yenesios. I argue that this is an important detail because of Noah's function in the story as the promised rest from repentance. The existence of the book signifies a discord between God and man, and the Nacham functions to patch that discord. Therefore, Noah's Toledot is without a book, yet, and I will argue that this story functions as an incredibly brilliant exposition for what exactly scripture is. Next, we hear that Noah was Sadiq, that is righteous, and Tamim, which is translated here as blameless, but it more so has a connotation of being complete. And why is Noah described by these attributes? Because he walked with God. The Bible explains itself. He's a shepherd who relies on God for sustenance, just like his ancestor Enoch. Next, we hear about his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We've already briefly touched on these three characters and their names, but it bears repeating because they are vital to understanding the rest of the scriptural narrative. Shem means name in Hebrew, and we will see how it is through this character that the name of God will be spread to the nations. The next son is Ham, which means hot. In other words, this character has the connotation of God's fiery wrath, his ire, so to speak. And we will see that his descendants, namely the Canaanites, will embody this reality and serve as a warning for the Israelites. His last son, Japheth, which means to enlarge, will be the outsider who receives the name of God from Shem and enlarges the kahal of God, that is, the group that is called out. Of course, this is perfectly translated into Greek as ekklesia, and not so perfectly translated into the English as church. But not to get ahead of ourselves or anything, I just wanted to plant these seeds before we proceeded. Moving on to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In these verses, it is important for us not to miss the fact that God is pronouncing judgment here. This is precisely the cycle that will be repeated ad nauseum throughout the scriptural narrative. And it is also important to note that the reason God always pronounces judgment is when people fail to be their brother's keeper. It's that simple. The violence spoken of here is simply in the purview of Cain's iniquity, the moment where the human being was truly broken, and thus kickstarts the entire scriptural epic. But once again, through Noah, there is always hope in the remnant that stay faithful, even if it just be one man and his family household. 
which is essentially what the family of Abraham will be later on. Noah here is a preview of the character Abraham and his descendants. And wherever there are children of Abraham through faith, the scriptural message will prevail against the iniquity of the world. I also want us to remember the nuances of the original language and the way it controls how we, the listeners, hear the text. Remember back five chapters ago when God created, made, and formed all reality. When he sets things in motion, he is saying for something to be, right? It's a cliche in Christian vocabulary that uh, God speaks and things happen. In our wimpy English language, we translate this phrase to, and God said, as in, and God said, let there be light. But in Hebrew, it's an extremely powerful phrase that, as I keep saying, controls our understanding. That phrase is, Vayomer Elohim. It is drilled into our minds in Genesis 1. You can hear the percussiveness of it, the musicality of it. It just makes you hear a certain way. So just go and listen to a reading of the Hebrew version, and you won't be able to not hear every instance of this phrase. Vayomer Elohim, da 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 stuff happens. Vayomer Elohim, and on and on. It makes you hear the same way God is making things in the story happen. So here in the Hebrew, it says, Vayomer Elohim Lenoach. The end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will use the earth to destroy them. This is striking. God isn't just like, hey, Noah, things are pretty bad, huh? He's saying with the total authority we have already been shown he has, this is enough. They are filling the earth with violence. And in the Hebrew, it's a verbal noun, uh, that word uh, violence. So it's more like they are filling the earth with violence against her. Uh, so it's kind of doubly emphasized. And with the earth, I will destroy them. This is a big deal. It is very impressive how the language of the Old Testament controls the way we hear the text in this way. It is not simply, oh, no, things are not good. It is, that is enough. I am stopping this. In other words, he's taking it back to Tohu Abohu. All righty. Uh, so picking up in verse 14, it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. In this passage, we hear about the instructions to build the ark, but more importantly, we perhaps get some clues as to the functionality of this story to the broader biblical mashal. The first thing I would like to mention is the word teba which gets translated into English as ark. Now, the word ark in English has more or less lost its meaning over time. I mean, Rowdy and I, when we were researching this, we were both like, you know, what the heck even is an ark? You know, <laughs> that never really comes up when you're, when you're growing up. But an ark, when we hear the word ark, we either think of a boat, as in the case of this story, or we think of the Ark of the Covenant. I think of the ark in, like, St. Louis, because that's another 
way that it's used in English yeah, is like an yeah, arch. Sometimes yeah, people pronounce right. arch as arc. Yeah, yeah. So it can be a little confusing. But I mean, either way, its exact meaning is rather arbitrary to modern hearers. So the English word arc derives from the Latin word arca, which has the connotation of a large wooden box or a chest, if you will. Uh, this is actually a really good translation of teba, which more or less carries the same meaning as the Latin arca. Interestingly, this word teba only appears in this section of Genesis, and then again when discussing the basket of reeds that the infant Moses is placed into at the start of the book of Exodus. Besides this, Noah and the ark are not discussed in the remainder of Scripture until the New Testament. When the Ark of the Covenant comes into play later on, the word that is used in Hebrew is not teba, but aron. This is interesting because aron has a very similar meaning in that it too has a connotation of being a storage box of sorts. So to put it concisely, the word Ark in Scripture translates two different Hebrew words. The word teba is used to describe Noah's Ark, and the basket baby Moses is placed into, and then the word Aaron is used to describe the Ark of the Covenant. Interestingly, though, in most translations, both of these words are rendered as one word with the same meaning. So, for example, in Greek, this word is kivotos, which translates both teba and Aaron. The same is true for the Latin Vulgate, which, of course, uses arca for both words. Hence the English following suit and also translating both words as ark. Okay, so why is this important? Well, on the one hand, there is an undeniable connection between the two arks, but we also need to respect the fact that the Hebrew uses two words. And what is also interesting in speaking of Noah's ark is the fact that it uses the word teba instead of Onia, which would be the word for ship or boat. So the fact that the emphasis here is on the function of the ark being a storage vessel rather than a boat is quite telling. It is, under, it is understanding the Hebrew that allows us to know the emphasis the authors are employing, which I think most modern readers of Scripture will naturally just think of Noah's ark as some big boat that he constructed to survive the flood, and that's the end of the story. But as we'll see... That's not the case. I also want to tackle the fact that the word teba is used here instead of aron, when we've already established their meanings are so close that they are essentially seen as synonyms by translators. These precise etymologies can get really complicated, but to put it simply, teba seems to be used when housing living beings. So we can see this plainly with Noah and Moses, and then Aron is used when housing inanimate objects and corpses. So, of course, we can see this with the tablets. And the word Aron is also used in scripture to describe coffins. So when it is a dead body, they use that word instead of Teba. The connection with Teba and living beings also makes sense because there is a connection with Teba and the Hebrew word for house, which is Beit. So similar to how Lamech and Melech are connected, Tibod and Beit are connected in that they contain the same letters, just rearranged. So this gives us an indication that there's more than meets the eye with Noah's Ark. The next clue we get, which connects it with Moses, is the gopher wood that it is made out of. 
Now, what the heck is gopher? This is a word that tends to stay untranslated because no one knows exactly how to translate it, it seems. But the most likely answer is that it is derived from an Akkadian word referring to reeds. Now, this is really interesting. Reeds, of course, are the primary ingredient for papyrus, the material that ancient scrolls were written on. So I think there is something very cool going on here, namely that the ark that saves Noah's family and the animals is a stand-in for Scripture itself. And I'd like to push this argument a little further by saying that the ark Noah is to build is not even just like a box or storage container made from reeds, but it is indeed a vessel woven like a basket, as Blaze alluded to. Let's look at some, uh, some of the evidence, starting with the gopher wood that God commands Noah to make the ark out of. This is not gopher, as in the animal we are aware of today. When I first heard gopher wood, I thought, oh, yeah, that must be like the, the wood that gophers chew on. Well, no. The Hebrew word gopher just happens to sound really similar to the name that we've given to the modern rodent belonging to the family Geomidae Bonaparte. Now, there are a lot of theories as to what exactly gopher wood is. Like Blaze said, uh, this is the only occurrence of this word in the entire Bible. So this is another one of those places that people have concocted all sorts of theories. Um, this is the story of Noah and the flood, after all. So the indeedness that people place on the historicity of it leads one to think that it must have been a mighty boat, capable of withstanding the mightiest of floodwaters. Following this logic led many to believe that gopher must mean cypress, which is a very sturdy tree yielding quality material for building a huge vessel such as the one that must have been required to sustain such a storm. The Septuagint translates gopher as squared beams, and the Vulgate translates it as planed beams. So we find a way to merge all of these and say that gopher must be cypress because it's a strong wood that fits the way we picture the boat to have been like, and because it has very, very vague similarities to the Hebrew word uh, that means cypress. But why wouldn't the original authors just use that word? Well, taking a deeper look at the word itself, gopher, kind of points every direction other than a strong, sturdy wood or tree. Remember, Hebrew wasn't originally written with vowels, and the vowels we use today come from the school of the Masoretes, who produced the most well-preserved manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. The Masoretes were just one school of pronunciation among others. They believed they were preserving the original sounds of the text, but they did this work in the 5th through the 10th centuries, several hundred years after the text's original delivery, at the least. I'm not saying they were clueless, but with words that happen once like this one, we could be more flexible with things like its pronunciation because the Masoretes, like us, hardly had a reference material. That being said, gopher could just as easily be gefer or gafar or any combination of these vowel sounds. This allows us to see some connections to other words that inform where this one might have come from or what the authors could be referencing. Uh, they could have made it more clear anyway, so why didn't they? I don't want to psychologize the original authors, but I am of the conviction that they expected those of us called to scholarship to put in a little work on behalf of the majority of people who can't be bothered, uh, because those who produced the scrolls were a schooled people after all. Let's look at what they gave us and look for the connections they are pointing us to. Gopher is related to the modern Arabic kufa or kufar, 
especially when we allow that flexibility I mentioned uh, for the pronunciation of gopher. You can hear the connection. Kufa, gafar, kufar, gofar, gefer. It's, I mean, it's there, right? Well, what is a kufar in Arabic? A kufar is a boat made in ancient and modern Mesopotamia. Of course, the cultural region the Bible itself came out of. It dates back to at least the 17th century BC or BCE. It is made by weaving reeds or a similar material into a large circle, kind of like an inner tube, securing the weaving with rope or thread, and lastly, sealing the inside with resin, pitch, or leather to make it waterproof. Sound familiar? In fact, we have in recent years even translated a cuneiform tablet from Babylon that dates back to Uh, 1750 BCE, in which a precursor to the flood story of Genesis is told. We've discussed before how the Bible co-opted many stories and folklore of its time to tell the story of God's Torah, so I hope it's not a huge surprise to any of our listeners who may not know that the flood story isn't entirely original in the way that we think about originality. Well, anyway, in this Babylonian story, the god Inki warns a man named Atrahasis about the flood and suggests that he build a kufa going into great detail about its construction and the massive size that it should be. So in case you didn't catch it, that word kufa is the exact same word uh, used by the inhabitants of Mesopotamia. Still to this day, it's called either a kufa or a kufar. But regardless, let's stick with what we've learned, that kufar or kufa describes the type of boat and the method of assembling such a vessel, and there are numerous strings that connect it to this word gopher, which we find in the Bible. So let's go a little bit further. As we've already said, the word we translate as ark in this verse is teba, and it, as well as the subsequent word, is in the construct state. This simply means that the following word or words qualify the type or essence or belongingness of the first word. So it's tevot atse gofer, which gets translated as an ark of gopher wood. Teba, as Blaze said earlier, is only used in this story Uh, for ark and as the word basket that the baby Moses is placed into in Exodus when he is sent down the river of reeds. I hope we're all seeing the same connections. So looking back at the Hebrew, it is literally saying, make a basket of woods of gopher. Okay, so we're still just transliterating that. We're still just saying gopher in English. So how do we understand uh, how that word is affecting the phrase? Well, according to me, we should hear teba is basket, and gopher as an emphasizing of the yes, indeed, a basketness that the authors are getting at. It is not describing the type of wood like how we would distinguish between coniferous and deciduous trees, but it is describing wood that is good for weaving. Go and make a basket of wood of the weaving kind. Teba and gopher are being used to control what we think of so that we think of a boat like the kufar of Mesopotamia instead of a massive wooden ship. It's telling us that God instructed Noah to make a huge basket, which is hilarious. God told Noah to make a big basket to hold all the animals and his family, and God will sustain them through the worst storm known to mankind. This is ridiculous. The kufar of Mesopotamia are like the inner tubes of a lazy river. You gently float downstream without any control because the shape of the craft, being a circle, causes it to spin in circles preventing you from rowing. It's used to transport fruit, vegetables, wine, and sometimes people. How could this sustain all the creatures of the earth through a great flood? 
Well, it's because it's not the vessel that is impressive. It is not what Noah built that is impressive. God will preserve humanity, the chance of salvation, through this family because he is held back from destruction because of his desire to see his children's return. This is impressive. Now that we have hopefully rid ourselves of what we originally thought the ark was, let's hearken back to what I mentioned earlier, that the ark is a stand-in for scripture itself. We are told that the ark has three compartments. This could correspond to the three sons of Noah and in turn the threefold structure of the Hebrew Bible. Shem, right, he carries the name of God through the Torah. So we could say that Shem represents the books of the Torah, that section of scripture. And then Ham, right, God's hot judgment. You could say uh, that he represents the judgments that the prophets make against Israel and the nations and the Nevi'im. And then you have Japheth, the enlargement of God's people by the reception of the Gentiles through the Ketuvim, right? If you read that section of scripture, the, the writings, they are primarily concerned with the Gentiles. All of these details make sense given this frame, and it gives the story extra purpose because remember, nothing in scripture is arbitrary. Everything serves a function and everything has a point. If we truly respect the text, we have to be aware of this. Right. It's not a story of, oops, the first humans did bad, so then God killed them all, and then here's some more humans to try again. It's right. it's much more than that. Right, yeah. It's, it's an image for how we are to approach what we're reading. And that, that's, that's what it seems like, at least to me now. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm willing to admit that uh, I'm reading this the wrong way. But at the same time, you know, I think that this... Model. I mean, I'll, I'll let the, the audience decide, but I, I think that this model for how this story is working in this section of Scripture is in itself a teaching tool to, to understand Scripture. So if that's the case, then whether the authors really intended that to be the underlying lesson behind the story— you know, we'll never know because we can't really go back and talk to them personally. But I think if it allows you to see scripture in a clearer way, then it has value. Yeah, I like to think that the people who wrote the Bible were smart enough to write within the Bible a means of which to understand the Bible, opposed to getting understanding from a few philosophers and theologians who use the Bible as a creative writing exercise. Right, yeah. And also, you know, I'm not just going to leave it there. I have a couple of other... Uh, reasons why I'm presenting it this way. Uh, so as further evidence for my point um, that the ark is a stand-in for scripture uh, is that when Teba shows up again with Moses's origin story, the basket that is containing him is made out of papyrus reeds. Check out Exodus 2 verse 3. And when she names him Moshe, she does so because she is drawing him out of water. Now, that word Moshe, meaning to draw out, is the active participle of our favorite word, Mashal, the example of the teaching encoded in its stories, as in drawing out the teaching through the example. And then also, as for the dimensions of the Ark, the Hebrew gematria, which is the symbolism of numbers, 
in that gematria, 300 corresponds to the, to the letter Shin, 50 corresponds to Nun, and 30 corresponds to Lamed. These three letters form the word Lashon, which means tongue or language, thus solidifying the image of the Ark as being the literature of God's instruction. Finally, we hear about God's command to build a roof in English, but this is actually a bad translation. In Hebrew, it's Zohar, which refers to a window of illumination. Of course, we could say that this is the light of God's Torah, of his teaching, that will sustain the inhabitants. The Bible is not just giving us arbitrary details as if this were a historical document. It is actively teaching us about the scripture we are hearing through different examples so that we will better receive and practice what God commands through it. Amen. It's controlling the way we hear the story, but only if we let it. That thing controlling our understanding is the word of the Lord. The word we will see as we continue through the Old Testament, is the totality of the Old Testament teaching, a character in his own right. This is precisely who Christ is. If we don't humble ourselves and let the Word control the way we understand Scripture, which was already present in the Old Testament before the New Testament, then we aren't hearing Scripture. We might as well have nailed the Word to a tree and walked away. Now, please don't think I'm making some theological point. My hope is simply that we will humble ourselves and do our bests to hear the text as it works to make us hear it. This is just the way that the literature functions. And if you are a Christian, this is how the faith functions. Let us be like those humble servants in the New Testament who know exactly who Jesus is when they are in his presence. Let us hear. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. An interesting thing that I want to point out is that this covenant uh, is slightly different than those of later books. In this verse, when God says, I will establish my covenant with you, the word for I will establish is from the root kum, which means to stand up and is the same word used as the directive arise and go. Opposed to the other usual phrase for covenant making in Hebrew, which is ekarati barati imcha, which is literally I will cut a covenant with you. So the type of covenant is not one of an agreement between two parties, but one of an activity on God's behalf. He is going to cause a covenant to stand and be active in the preservation of Noah and his descendants, similar to the role of the ruach or wind of God earlier in this chapter. In addition to that, we, we also are getting a lot of phrases 
that are that are giving this allusion to a return of the garden idea. Now, Noah is to take the animals according to their kind, every animal that moves on the ground according to their kind, male and female. And God says, you shall take from all the food which is good for eating, and it shall be food for you and for them. These are all really similar phrases that we heard in, uh, in creation in earlier chapters before sin entered the world. This is a reset, and it is all brought through Noah, the consolation, who brings Naham, rest, and repentance. And it will usher in a new beginning, with a life like that of the garden. This is the constant drumming heartbeat of the Bible. Regardless of where you look in Scripture, as long as you're taking in the total story being presented in that part of Scripture, this message of salvation and forgiveness and return is being offered to you the reader. Because what is a story if it's not offering you something? It's a textbook, and we know that the Bible is not a textbook. It is a story, a message, a request, an offer to each of us to be granted a life with the God whose entire character, as it's presented in Scripture, is concerned with our salvation. Let us forget ourselves and hear Him. If this is our prayer, He will surely grant our request. All glory be to him. Amen. Amen. And he shall be like the tree which is planted by the stream.